Welcome to Science Story Time. Today's episode on Chapter 1 Star Gods. Star Gods by Jack Lovejoy, 1978. Chapter 1 It was late afternoon. Millions of people were crowding homeward towards millions of profuse dinners in millions of houses heated by hundreds of millions of tons of fuel. The air was acrid and sulfurous with the city's exhalations. The drab blue of the sky faded into an ominous industrial gray towards the horizon. It was a familiar environment, one I had accepted all my life, but now I felt like a complete outsider. I would sleep tonight, perhaps forever, but I would never again see morning in the world into which I had been born. Dr. and Mrs. Jaffe saw me to the bus station. They were my nearest neighbors. Throughout the whole period of crisis, they had been kind and understanding, doing what they could to soften the blow. It may seem cynical, but now I needed only them as witnesses. Any subsequent investigation was sure to begin with them. They would report, truthfully, that they had seen me get on a bus to California. My lawyer was there, too. Each in his own way, these three people had stood by me at the last. I knew what they thought that my strange behavior during the two years since the accident was the result of shock. My morbid obsession with my work, my fanatical fitness program, my irresponsibility in money matters, and now my joining an obscure religious sect, it all pointed the same way. I hated to deceive them, but I had no choice. Mrs. Jaffe wept as I boarded the California bus. Dr. Jaffe merely shook my hand and gave me his blessing. He was too experienced in the depths of human suffering to think that anything he might say now would make the slightest difference. My lawyer gave me a brusque hand clasp. His logical mind was probably calculating how long it would be before I snapped out of it, if ever. None of them questioned my mode of transportation. Bus is the cheapest, if most grueling, means of getting to the coast, and I was believed to have taken vows of poverty. My lawyer had bought me a ticket to California that morning, he too would be a witness. Unknown to any of them, I had bought a ticket to Rock Falls, Illinois the night before. I handed my Rock Falls ticket to the driver and pocketed the stub. The bus was crowded with military personnel, women and children, a scattering of old people and a few down-at-the-heels men probably looking to change their luck in another part of the country. The crowd outside was small and poorly dressed. They waved and the people on the bus waved back. Toward the rear of the crowd stood my friends. Mrs. Jaffe was still crying. I smiled and waved. They waved back rather self-consciously. Not many people they knew took cross-country trips by bus. With a rush of compressed air, the front door swung shut. The engine burst into life. Once more I waved. Once more my friends waved back. It was the last I ever saw of them. I made myself as inconspicuous as possible sitting at the back of the bus beside a window, watching the grotesque suburban sprawl flash by. Mile after mile of asphalt and concrete, neon and plastic, beer cans, soda pop bottles, and the litter of a thousand kinds of paper containers. Like some pathological growth metastasizing outward from the tumorous city, it seemed to be blighting before my eyes the once luxuriant forests and meadows. The effect was hypnotic. As the sun dropped towards the horizon, the landscape softened. There were more farms now, 
whose owners were somehow holding on in spite of the ever-increasing taxes and overhead. But the squandering and overcrowding were headed this way. It was only a matter of time. I tried to think of what lay before me, but it was all too vast and overwhelming. Everything was done that could be done. Everything checked and rechecked a dozen times. I was fully committed, and all that remained was to follow each step on my memorized checklist. Strangely, the future meant nothing to me, nor with one exception could my mind recall the past. Much of what had happened before the tragedy was vague. Nearly everything that had happened since seemed now like a dream one cannot quite recall. But that last day, perhaps because of what lay at the end of it, was printed in my memory like a movie seen too many times. My lecture that day was a brief one, an end-of-quarter summing up of the course. I was pleased to see that in spite of the bad weather, the classroom was nearly full. This was always my favorite part of a course. It is remarkable how much a professor learns from his students. Whether the reverse is true, I have never really been sure. They pass tests. Toward the end of the period, one of the shyer students, a thin, dark-haired girl sitting in next to the last row, asked about the possibility of brain damage from prolonged hibernation. I smiled to myself at the question. That very morning I had received a letter from London directed to my home address, Dr. Frederick G. Randolph, 5817 South Buchanan Drive, Chicago, Illinois, USA. I was invited to deliver a paper at the International Symposium on Metabolism and Metabolites. My doctoral dissertation on induced hibernation had caused something of a sensation when it was first published, and I was still considered unsafe by my more sedate colleagues. In fact, I had submitted the paper more to stir up the staid London Screening Committee than with any real hopes of it being accepted. Thus, the girl's question could not have come at a more appropriate moment. If the organism were maintained in a high-nutrient, high-oxygen environment, I replied, I see no reason why it could not be preserved indefinitely without significant brain damage. And since the aging process seems to be in some way attributable to accidents in cell replacement, the inhibition of cytogenesis could slow natural deterioration to the point where aging would virtually cease. A computer-controlled environment of low temperature and therapeutic levels of oxygen and nutrients would be necessary, however. Prolonged hibernation could only be maintained under the very strictest laboratory conditions. But then, suggested a bearded young man, intrigued, if, as you say, science is capable of producing such an environment, why then a human being, for instance, could be kept alive for hundreds of years in suspended animation, couldn't he? In theory, yes. I did not explain that the theory was almost exclusively mine, nor did I launch into a learned tirade against those of my colleagues who had lately been launching into learned tirades against me and my work. The class period being almost over and the halls outside were getting noisy, I left. I'll make a note to continue this discussion another time, I continued. But to finish answering your question, one could, in theory, maintain a human being in hibernation for considerable periods of time but only in a controlled, perfectly stable environment. My own findings put the theoretical maximum at about 500 years. We already have the technology to do this. However, science does not exist in a vacuum, despite what many scientists think. The problem would be to find a political environment that could be depended upon to maintain the necessary laboratory conditions for anything like that period of time. And, of course, I concluded, closing my briefcase, 
finding a volunteer. There were no more questions, and I wished the class good luck on the final exam. It was only a survey course. I had not gone into my consultation work in the space program, since that was still bound and gagged with government red tape. Nor did I ever dream that what I had just said might someday have a personal application. The faculty meeting that afternoon was the usual bore. I did what I could to stir things up, but it ended as it always did, with polite bickering and nothing really accomplished. I don't know how many times I've been told the same thing. You just can't leave well enough alone, can you? But it's a law of nature that when things stop stirring, they start stagnating. Then crusts form. I'm happiest when things are stirred up a bit, especially when I'm the one doing the stirring up. Caste systems have always seemed to me a kind of death. But the death waiting for me at the end of the day was real, perhaps too real for me to accept, then or in the years that followed. Such things happen every day in modern industrial society, but always to someone else. This time, it happened to me. On the expressway, while my wife was driving the children to the dentist's office, a semi-trailer skidded on the ice, jackknifed, and crushed their car against the bridge abutment. The truck driver walked away without a scratch, but for me, it was the end of all that, until then, had made life worth living. It was also a beginning. For the next two years, every waking hour was filled with some activity. When I was not working at the project, I was working out at the gymnasium. I had been a physical fitness buff before, and now I became a fanatic. Basketball had been my sport in high school. I half-heartedly tried out for the team in college, but I stand barely over six feet tall and was up against semi-professional athletes recruited from all over the country. But now, in my middle thirties, it was not to basketball that I turned. I had attended karate classes off and on over the years, more for the exercise than because any intention of turning myself into a lethal weapon. In fact, I'd always smiled at the sight of the karate fanatics yowling and chopping the air in the corner of the gymnasium. But soon, these fanatics could hardly give me a bout. There is no physical fitness program quite like a thorough dedication to the martial arts. And if I have indeed turned myself into a lethal weapon, suddenly, I felt someone's eyes on me. I glanced up from the window and found a fat, middle-aged woman staring suspiciously at me. I guessed at once what was wrong. When I daydream, if I'm not careful, my facial expressions tend to follow my thoughts. The sight of a man smiling, frowning, and grimacing to himself might make anyone suspicious. It was important that I remained anonymous. Rock Falls was settling down for the night with that complacent languor peculiar to small Midwestern towns after dark. There was still a long way to go, and I made myself as inconspicuous as possible. I carried only a small plastic overnight bag, and I was clean and well-dressed. There would be no trouble hitchhiking north. It was important that my digestive tract remain clean, so I neither ate nor drank. Fortunately, the weather was good. A mild spring night beneath a cloudless sky. A salesman on his way to his Wisconsin district gave me a ride. Apparently, I made a favorable impression on him. We had not gone five miles before he launched into a narration of an incident that had occurred twenty years before, when he was a young soldier in Korea. I proved to be such a good listener that he favored me with several more such anecdotes. As the darkening miles passed and the salesman's voice droned on and on, the landscape grew more and more rugged. A gibbous moon stood halfway up the sky, giving a leprous pallor to the rolling hills and fields. 
We were entering the driftless area. It was a strange region, almost weird. For no known reason, the glaciers of the Ice Age passed it by, leaving it an untouched island surrounded by a sea of ice. The towns grew fewer and fewer, and there were not many cars on the road now. But for my purposes, this isolated region was ideal. Unknown even to my lawyer, every penny I had in the world was invested here. The details are not important now. The insurance settlement and the sale of various properties provided the cash. My work in the space program told me what was available. Suffice it to say that certain monies changed hands, that certain inventories were transmogrified. Nor did the building contractors ask any prying questions about the compact nuclear power plant. They were paid their money and they did their job. I suspect that mine was not the first such bomb shelter they had built. The Fever River area abounds in abandoned mine shafts left from the lead mining boom of the 19th century. The farm I bought lay right over one such shaft. Had the contractors known what they were really building, they might have been more curious. My lawyer was disgruntled when I told him to settle my estate as fast as he could, regardless of how much more money he could have gotten later. He clearly suspected my sanity, and was probably not too surprised when I instructed him to donate my newly acquired farm to the state as a recreational area. When I informed him that I had joined an obscure religious sect in California with vows of absolute poverty, he merely shrugged. My books and papers I gave to the university. Resigning my position, I no longer had a penny in the world. I was free of all human ties. There was no reason for anyone ever to contact me again, or so I hoped. The salesman was obviously not the kind of man who liked being alone. He genuinely liked people, and he liked being around them. My presence has lightened his long trip. He loved to talk. I believe that the paunchy, extroverted man would gladly have bought me an eight-course dinner had I let him. But I had to refuse even so much as a cup of coffee. I made up a story about stomach trouble. He was disappointed, but then he launched into a series of anecdotes about digestive problems, and the miles passed. I got out at a small, obscure country road just outside a small, obscure village. The salesman would gladly have gone out of his way to take me as far as I wanted to go up the little dirt road, but again, I had to refuse. He obviously did not understand why anybody would want to come to such a godforsaken place, but he did not intrude. It was my right even if it made no sense at all. Professors are all oddballs anyway. He shook my hand with genuine friendliness, his big jolly face beaming from ear to ear. Then he lit a fat cigar, waved goodbye, and drove off to his warm, comfortable world of buying and selling and lots of people. I watched the red glow of his taillights until they disappeared around a bend, and that was the last I ever saw of America. A moonlit road threaded its way for miles through the hills. A few of the better road guides listed it as unimproved country road. Most maps, however, were unaware of its existence. The road was strange. It, I had always used the more direct and more populous route before, but that way would have meant certain detection. I had several miles to walk and a great deal to do after I reached the farm. I had to finish before dawn. Although it was spring, no rain had fallen for several days. The worst ruts and potholes in the road had been filled in with cinders and gravel, but I had to watch my step in the dark. The earth was cooling rapidly beneath the cloudless sky, and a heavy dew was beginning to silver the fields. I shivered, 
drawing my thin jacket tight about my chest. I came upon several access roads, but saw a few houses. Those that I did see were all darkened. Whether they were abandoned or the inhabitants only asleep, I could not tell. I was on the lookout for anyone walking, and was prepared to duck for cover, but there was no one. The headlights of an approaching farm vehicle surely would have given me ample time to hide, but none approached. Once I thought I heard a dog barking, but it was too far away, and I could not be sure. Never in my life had I felt such utter loneliness. The farm and everything on it were now the property of the state, but my donation was legally only three days old, and the wheels of bureaucracy turned slowly. Someone from some department somewhere in the state government would probably be out in a week or two to put up a sign officially declaring my farm state property. But I could not see it. I would not see it. I had turned over the keys to my lawyer, but of course, I had a duplicate set. Dawn glimmered in the east as I finished transferring the last of my things into the bomb shelter, carefully removing all traces of having been there. I locked the front door of the old farmhouse. The entrance to the mine shaft was less than a hundred yards from the back door, straight across the fields, but I used a roundabout way, which kept me screened from sight by dark groves of elm and maple. It was probably a needless precaution, for all that I could see or hear, I was the last man left on earth. The mine shaft opened into a base of a hill. It was usually kept boarded and padlocked, looking like somebody had misplaced an old-fashioned cellar door. The ground all around was torn and rutted by the vehicles of the contractors and workmen who had built the bomb shelter for me in the dead-end shaft, deep beneath the hill. Item. Last look at the world into which you were born. Such was my obsession that this was actually the next item on my memorized checklist. Dutifully, I glanced about the dawning fields and groves of the state's newly acquired property. One is supposed to wax sentimental at a moment like this, to think great thoughts, to rhapsodize on the meaning of it all. But I was not really moved. All that I had so fanatically striven to achieve during the last two years lay before me, nothing behind. I had no regrets as I lowered the rough wooden door over my head. It had cost me many days of thought and long hours of practice to perfect my culminating touch, the final stroke that must leave my probably non-existent pursuers forever baffled. The idea was not original. I merely adapted it from a classic detective story I had read. It was a dead body in locked room puzzle, which the sleuth solved by showing how the door was bolted from the outside by manipulating a string. My problem was to lock a padlock from the inside. I, too, used strings, several of them, and a cellophane, cellophane sling. The door lay at a 30-degree angle. It was loosely fitted into the frame. Carefully, I removed the thumbtacks holding the strings in place at the sides of the door. Gently, I pulled the shackles of the padlock through the staples. The door could no longer be opened from the inside, but that was not good enough. Through a crack, I could see the lock silhouetted against the dawn. With another string, I flipped it over onto its opposite side. I had adjusted the mechanism to snap shut at a touch. Slowly, I drew in the string at the far side of the door. The click was barely audible. I slipped the strings and the cellophane sling around the edges of the door. Not a shred of evidence was left behind, not so much as a single thumbtack. I now turned on my flashlight. Three separate times I had checked the passageway for telltale evidence. I was sure there was not so much as a footprint to guide my imaginary pursuers, 
but still I checked again, sweeping the beam of my flashlight back and forth across the rusting, narrow-gauge tracks of a dead industry. There was nothing. A few scrawny rats scuttled for cover. Wood had been plentiful in the heyday of the lead mining boom, and the shafts were solidly buttressed with beams of oak. The lead-sulfide ore had generally occurred in pockets well above the groundwater level. Some of the walls were clammy, but there were no standing pools anywhere. Even the remote shaft that held my destiny was safely above the water table. It was almost noon in the world outside before I had run through my checklists. I was ravenously hungry, but I neither ate nor drank. I glanced about my work with pride. Hundreds of thousands of dollars had gone into its construction. The equipment was among the most sophisticated known to modern science. Its market value would have been in the millions, if it could have been purchased at all. It was a three-chambered vault about the size of a three-room apartment, hewn out of the living rock. The storage chamber was the largest of the three. It was crammed with food and drink, special equipment, weapons, and medical supplies, all in hermetic containers. The second chamber held the computer and power supply, the cost of the latter easily exceeding everything else in the entire vault. In the last and smallest room rested a glass and metal casket. Cables trailed away from it in all directions like the tentacles of a jellyfish. This was to be my home, perhaps forever. Now came the final step. I attached a pair of wires to the electrodes of a detonator. Standing in the doorway of my chambered vault, I peered into the darkness beyond. There would always be one means of escape, but what I was about to do seemed irrevocable. I pushed the plunger. There was a sharp crack followed by the dull rumble of falling rock and debris. The shaft was now sealed. Even if some state bureaucrat did chance to hear about some crank professor's bomb shelter in an abandoned lead mine on state property, he would do nothing about it. I had set the charges in such a way that excavation would be extremely expensive. Such an expense would certainly be questioned by legislators, especially those in the party out of power, and bureaucrats do not like trouble. I slammed and bolted the steel door just as the dust cloud raised by the explosion rushed at me out of the darkness. Then I began the final countdown, checking and rechecking every dial, including those on the emergency and backup circuits. Five hundred years is a long time. Much could go wrong. I laid my clothes on the bench beside the cheap, mass-produced plastic overnight bag. Donning a white hospital gown, I entered the small chamber. It took nearly an hour for me to attach the various braces, tubes, and electrodes to my body. No one knew of the immense journey I was about to undertake. No one cared. The outside world would go its way just as it always had. Eating and sleeping and breeding, building up and tearing down, hating, destroying, and hoping. That world held nothing for me anymore. I was already a forgotten man. Nor had I thought much about the future. I had read prophetic books by the score, but none of their visionary worlds had influenced my thinking. I had been too obsessed with the road itself even to wonder where it might lead. Nor did I now. There were two switches directly above my head. I pushed them both, one after the other. With hardly a whisper, the glass bubble slowly encased me. There was a faint hiss of escaping air. I began to feel cold and drowsy. Soft waves of languor swept through me, carrying me inexorably away from the world I knew. On the brink of unconsciousness, I felt all my defenses suddenly melt away. 
What was I really trying to do here? Had I any real chance of success? Did it matter? The mind of man is a strange thing. Perhaps it would have been more honest to have used a gun instead. Chapter 2 